Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's President's Day weekend, which means we have a holiday weekend clips show for you this week. We'll be featuring two exhibitions that have recently switched sides of the country. First up, Aaron Cristoval joins me to discuss the retrospective Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. It's at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles through May 15th. Cristoval co-curated the show with Meg Onley, who at the time was at the ICA Philadelphia, which originated the exhibition. Jenkins is an influential video and performance artist whose work has examined how cultural iconography and history have informed representation. The exhibition catalog was published by The Hammer and the ICA Philadelphia. IndieBound and Amazon each offer it for about $40. And the museums have republished Jenkins's memoir. It's terrific. It's titled Doggerel Life, Stories of a Los Angeles Gryop. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for $15. bucks. we will have links to all of that on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Hans Holbein at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York. But first, Aaron Cristoval, after the break. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Scene Changes, sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art, presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Isamu Noguchi each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. The exhibition follows sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinan, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. 
And we're back. Aaron Cristobal, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler. The beginning of your address of Ulysses Jenkins's work cites him in, in two contexts, as having grown up in civil rights era Los Angeles and as having grown up in a particularly specific geography within civil rights era Los Angeles. And so that geography is, you know, I'm not sure where the city boundaries are and all that, but it's basically between Culver City and Crenshaw, an intersection at which the Hollywood studios filmed Westerns, which, oh my God, I had not known. How and why did Jenkins see this, you know, intersection as being crucial to the work he has made? Right. And I think so much of his personal life really influences his work. And I think the city does as well. You know, he was born and raised in Los Angeles and he's lived here for the majority of his life. And so I think we can't help but sort of think through the history of Los Angeles and think about this term, multiculturalism. You know, that term, I think, is really contentious in a lot of circles. I think it has been instrumentalized by certain groups and civil agencies. But Ultimately, Ulysses continues to return back to this term in that when we think about the late 70s and the early 80s, so many artists of color in this city were not being supported by galleries and were not being supported by museums and art institutions. And so, so much of that was sort of making their own spaces, using their studios to support each other, thinking about these conceptual incubators. And that is really sort of where you see these cross-cultural exchanges within this sort of burgeoning art community happen. And Ulysses is very much a staple of that. He starts Other Vision Studios, which is his own studio space, but is also this incubator space for so many of his friends. And so many beautiful works come out of that, both his and also friends of his, you know, including May Sun, Rudy Perez, and Marin Hassinger, Sangin and Goody, so many others. We're going to come back to other visions in, in, in a moment. You mentioned performing and making work under freeways. And of course, Sangin and Goody did that. David Hammonds did that. I think Marin Hassinger did too, if memory serves. So for people who are not familiar with Los Angeles, is that space kind of where Culver City and Crenshaw kind of overlap a particularly, was it a particularly diverse place when, when Jenkins was growing up in the late 60s, mid to late 60s and 70s? It was starting to become that. So Ulysses went to Hamilton High School, which was integrated at the time, even though LAUSD wouldn't officially be integrated until 1976. But it is wild when you think about just how recent all of this history is, but also about the fact that he wrote a memoir in the early 90s called you know, A Doggerel Life, which we actually are re republishing for the exhibition. And he talks a lot about his family being one of three Black families in his neighborhood that at the time was predominantly white. And so his formative years are very much impacted by these early inroads into integration in the city. Jenkins really kind of starts out as as somebody engaged with and working on murals. 
So how does he come to be engaged with murals really across Los Angeles in, in the 1970s? I think Ulysses's mural history is something that isn't really explored until now, which is really exciting that I think we've been able to go through that with him. And so Ulysses, while he was living in L.A., once he graduated from high school, he actually went down south and went to Southern University, which is a historically black college in Louisiana. And there he studied painting and drawing. So he graduates in 69. He comes back to L.A., and he needs a job, and he lands a gig at the Los Angeles Probation Department in Central Juvenile Hall. And there, he's actually working as an artist, so he is creating these, like, large-scale painted backdrops for various plays and programs that they're putting on. And so that's where he sort of initially gets inspired to paint at a large scale. He also cites the various murals that we're seeing throughout East LA at the time. And he's also thinking about OSCO and their sort of anti-mural movement. But it isn't until he actually moves to Venice where he discovers several sort of mural groups that's where he starts to make his his first murals. And so his mural history is actually really interesting because it leads him to create one of the murals that is actually still standing and looking over the 110 freeway, which is called Transportation Brings Art to the People. And he made this mural in 1974. There's a great picture of it under construction, if you will, in, in the catalog, where the, the lower third of it is gridded and there's a man on a ladder, which if you're me, that makes you nervous because you're terrified of heights. But yeah, it's a great picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, he creates this mural in 1974. And he it's essentially, it's for the DMV at the time he gets commissioned by the DMV. And it's this wonderful mural that is considering all of the people, specifically the people of color, who made transportation possible in California. I mean, the mural includes everything from the PCH to stagecoaches. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's a, it's a little bit of everything, but it's really thinking about the people of color that made the transcontinental railroad possible, which was the first railroad that essentially went east to west in this country. And so this mural, I think, is really amazing because it's still visible on the facade of that DMV building on the freeway, and it's actually still, like, pretty intact. So he does that mural at the time. He also works on Judy Baca's The Great Wall, which is a sprawling mural in the Tahunga Wash, which was done in 1976. And his specific portion of that mural is called 1848 Band-Aid. And it sort of includes all of these various historical figures in California. Biddy Mason, who was, you know, a Black woman who essentially freed herself from slavery and, you know, went on become, to become a real estate mogul. She also started the first AME church in Los Angeles. 
and other sort of fictional figures such as Joaquin Murrieta, who was sort of known to be this Robin Hood during the gold rush era. And so, so much of the depictions in this mural are sort of based on this revisionist history of California and really, again, centering multiculturalism and thinking about these various people of color who have made this city and this state possible. Of course, those of us who grew up in San Francisco and thus, of course, have a rivalry with L.A. in our blood, um, like to note that Mary Ellen Pleasant was followed by by Biddy Mason. <laughs> in these two early Ulysses Jenkins projects and collaborations, we have two things that really remain in the work thereafter. Self-defined multiculturalism, an eager willingness, if not centering of collaboration with others. And that, that stays in through his career, right? Absolutely. I mean, Ulysses is really sort of the glue, in my opinion, of a certain moment in the LA arts community, because, you know, not only is he collaborating with various artists, but he's also very much the sort of documentarian of so many artists at the time. His work, King David, which is a really beautiful, short, black and white documentary is really documenting David Hammond's last day in Los Angeles before he moves to New York. There's another really great documentary called Momentous Occasions, Charles White, which documents his then professor, Charles White, and a major show that he has at Barnstall Art Park. And so I think it's been really interesting to consider how people have had difficulty placing Ulysses as an artist in that he, you know, really used, utilized video to the fullest. He wasn't just necessarily making video art, but he was thinking about documentary. He has a stint as a public access programmer. And so he's really an artist that's charting his own path. We should probably talk a little bit about when he becomes interested in performance and video. It comes along after he's started working on murals uh, at the end of the 1970s, around 1980 or so. And it's an amazing moment for video and most amazing, especially in Los Angeles, where artists were embracing the new medium with a particular focus and a special intensity. And they're doing that in part because institutions such as the Long, Long Beach Museum we're making equipment that was typically expensive to use or to rent time on available to them. So what do we know about why video interests him and what he thinks about doing it, which is to say not just documentary, but he starts making what we now readily recognize as video art. It is a really fascinating moment in LA's history, LA art's history. So after his sort of stint with muralism, he actually is thinking about grad school. And so he applies to UCLA, he gets rejected, and the artist Gary Lloyd actually sort of tells him he should apply to Otis and that Charles White is there and Betty Sarr is there. And so he applies to Otis, he gets in, and he goes into the now defunct intermedia department, which is focused on video and performance. And what's really fascinating about this department at the time is you have people such as Chris Burden, Carl Chang, 
Eileen Segalov, Jean Youngblood, and they are all sort of inspiring this new generation of artists and really welcoming them into video and performance at the time. And so this really sort of sets this new trajectory for his practice. And, you know, I think beyond that, I think Ulysses's fascination with video really just stems from growing up in L.A. I mean, you know, as you mentioned earlier, he grew up next to these major studios. He grew up next to the Desilu studio. And so, you know, I think about video in particular and its sort of influence, the cinematic influence of the city and how that comes into play. And so when some of these early themes in his work start to get teased out, uh, you see that there's a very strong focus on how the media portrays and depicts Black men, the sort of caricatures and stereotypes that we are constantly fed. And so, so much of him using video as a format, I think, is a sort of way to refuse or circumvent film and its history of these sort of depictions. And so it's this really interesting juxtaposition that's happening. The work to which I think you're referring is 1978's Massive Images. On the show page at manpodcast.com, we will include Vimeos of, of as many of these works as possible. But for the purposes of the here and the present, what do we see when we, when we look at Massive Images? Right. So Massive Images is his first performance video work. And it's really fascinating because it's actually an assignment that comes out of a class that he's taking at Santa Monica City College. So he does take some Santa Monica City College courses before he enters into Otis. And during that time, he's taking a class on the history of African-American cinema. And so he's very much getting this sort of download of all of these early race films, you know, such as D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation or, you know, these various films in which you're, you're seeing these depictions of people in blackface. And so Massive Images is really sort of calling that history to attention. And so what you see is Ulysses in a wheelchair with the sort of see-through mask, and he has this this sort of massive hammer, and he's sitting next to a pile of TVs, of, of monitors. And he starts it off by saying, you're a Massive Images you know, something, I can't remember all of it, but he's essentially talking about this, what he refers to as the image problem in the way in which cinema and media has continued to depict Black people, but specifically Black men. And so as he is having this confrontation, this sort of standoff with these stack of monitors, we're also confronted with this montage of these, this history of these various films. You know, as I mentioned before, Birth of a Nation, The Jazz Singer, and we're, we're sort of seeing this history play out. And so at the very end of the film, you see him attempting to essentially break and rupture the monitors with his hammer, but he can't bring himself to do that. 
And then instead he turns to the camera. And so it's this really interesting performance of him confronting this image problem, him essentially wanting to to destroy this history and this legacy of stereotyping, but he sort of ultimately realizes that he doesn't have the power to do that. But he looks at you, the viewer, and the camera in sort of questioning, well, what will you do about it? What can a collective effort do to fix this issue? And so it's a really powerful first performance video piece that he does that I think really sets the tone for the works he does moving forward. You mentioned other visions a few moments ago. It was a, I don't know, not quite a collective. I'm not quite sure what the word would be, but it's sort of a collective that Jenkins formed partly with grant money he received from the National Endowment for the Arts. And among the collaborations in which Jenkins participated in, in these years was May Sun's 1986, The Great Wall or How Red Is My China? Tell us a little bit about that work. And is it a good example of how Jenkins extended his interest in both collaboration and multiculturalism in new directions? Absolutely. So, you know, shortly after he graduates from Otis, he receives this NEA grant and he actually receives it from a work that he submits to Zone Transfer, which is his first performance turned video work that he did sort of infamously with the three other black students at Otis, which were Ronnie Nichols, Greg Pitts and Carrie James Marshall. And so he receives this grant money, He's he graduated, and he starts Other Vision Studio, which to him is his own sort of working studio, but also is, is a conceptual incubator for so many other artists, specifically artists of color in LA who just need a space, you know, need space to show their work, need space to sort of collaborate and collectively work together. And what's really interesting about other visions as a concept or an entity is over the course of his life, it sort of takes on these different forms. At a certain point, there's other visions band, which is his band when he starts to become, you know, starts to really get into music and considers himself to be a musician. But essentially other visions is sort of the container of Ulysses's practice. So at this time, when Other Vision Studio is sort of coming to fore, you have May Sun, who also went to Otis, working in Other Visions. You also have artists like Marin Hassinger and Senga Nguri coming in, who at the time were part of the collective Studio Z, which Ulysses is sort of in and out of. And you also have Rudy Perez, who is is known to be this sort of innovative postmodern dancer who's holding workshops at the studio. So you have all this wonderful energy and activity that's coming out of this space. And one of the really great pieces that comes out of it is The Great Wall or How Red Is My China by May Sun in 1986. So Mason first performs this piece at Lace, which, you know, I think has its own sort of incredible LA history. Lace being Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions in Hollywood. Yes, exactly. 
and it's more of a theatrical piece in which May Sun is thinking about her generation of Chinese American people and thinking about their reflections on uh, the Chinese Communist Party and how that has impacted their lives, the this sort of intergenerational trauma and history that comes from it. And May actually, when May Sun went to China, she learned that her two aunts were a part of the party. And so it's also very much considering her personal family legacy around the Chinese Communist Party. And so what's really fascinating about all of this is Ulysses plays Paul Robeson in this piece. And you kind of wonder, what does Paul Robeson have to do with the Chinese Communist Party? But what's fascinating about this is Paul Robeson was actually a really great friend of Mao Zedong. And he famously sang Chi La in Mandarin, which uh, translates to the March of the Volunteers. And that song eventually became the the national anthem for the Chinese Communist Party. And so what I love about this moment is you have not only these multicultural connections that are happening in that present time in which May is performing this, but you know they're also actively considering this lineage of connections through both personal and major national histories. As as Jenkins's career advances, he becomes more and more interested in indigenous histories and movements, especially in in California. What prompts that interest and how does he work it into his work? Right. And I really love this. I mean, I I think that this is a really important part of Ulysses's practice that doesn't always get teased out is, again, I think as someone who grows up in Los Angeles, is growing up in the state of California, there is a very strong indigenous presence and history surrounding him. And so he taps into that in the early 80s, starting with one of his first pieces around that Columbus Day, a dog roll. So this piece, Columbus Day, a dog roll, he basically creates this this mound of soil in the middle of the gallery. And unbeknownst to the, the public that's there, there's a rotting carcass of a dead squirrel in the middle of this soil. But it's not visible to the public because he's put this, this sort of vintage lawnmower on top of it. And so this lawnmower is something that you see show up in later works. And for him, the lawnmower was really a sort of representation of Western imperialism in that it mows down everything in its sight. It's sort of relentless in that way. And this carcass is really representing, I think, not only the lives, the sort of genocide and enslavement of Native people, but also all people who have been affected by Western imperialism. And so, you know, I think his interest in Indigenous people's struggle is very much tied to just like a larger struggle and thinking about how this imperialism 
plays out over time. So after that, you know, he goes on to do several works. He does a piece called Being Witness Haida, which is a documentary that actually documents Reg Davidson and Jim Hart, who are two prominent native carvers from Haida, Gwaii, off the coast of British Columbia. And it's this really wonderful documentary that just sort of outlines both of them. They're both, uh, one is building a canoe and the other is building this totem pole. And so it documents the process, the ritual and the ceremony that goes around once they're created and, you know, centers obviously this cultural legacy of working in this way. He moves to the Bay Area in the early 90s, and he talked to me about attending the annual Thanksgiving Day or the Indigenous People Sunrise Ceremony that is held on Alcatraz to commemorate the 1969 protests in which members from the Red Power Movement occupied the island. And that moment being extremely impactful for him again, in sort of thinking through indigenous struggles. And so he goes on to do several works in the Bay Area, Bay Window, which is a really great work that utilizes the video phone that he does at SF MoMA. And it's this really wonderful day-long event in which he is using the video phone to connect with various people up and down the West Coast, specifically indigenous people, to think through environmental racism, environmental justice, and this idea of sustainability. And so I think for him, he's really considering these struggles as part of a larger struggle. And he's thinking about solidarity, and he's thinking about the power of cross-cultural exchange. As part of this project, how have you and your co-curator, Meg Only, been working to make sure kind of a full range of Jenkins's practice is more accessible and, and visible than it had been? You mentioned, in addition to the exhibition catalog, which of course, of course exists, you've expanded this project to include a publishing project. Right. I mean, I think Meg and I, as I mentioned, started this project three years ago. And what was really fascinating about it was just sort of thinking about our knowledge of his work when we started versus now. And it's just fascinating because, you know, I think Ulysses is really known for a select few video works that he made in the 70s. And that has always sort of been what has circulated. But the moment that we stepped into his studio, we realized that he has kept everything for the past 50 years. And stepping into that studio really opened this incredible multivalent practice of his that I think really coincides with a history and an origin story of video as a format. And what you notice about Ulysses is he is a true artist in that so much of his work is just this ongoing experimentation of the limitations and the boundaries and the capacities of video, of collaboration, of performance. And he's always sort of trying out these new things. I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, what you learn through this process is he's so much more than a video artist. 
He is, you know, as I mentioned, a documentarian. He's doing public access programming. You know, we could even argue that he starts making music videos. When you think of his piece, Peace in Anwar Sadat, which was made in response to the assassination of Anwar Sadat, who was the first Egyptian president, you see him edging more into music and, and taking ownership of this identity of a musician. And so he's someone who is just truly DIY in a sense, truly experimental, always sort of innovating. And it's just really admirable. And so I think for Meg and I, it was really important to encapsulate not only 50 years of work, but a certain sensibility and aesthetic that is truly Ulysses, you know, that is gritty, that is pixelated, that is video in its earliest form, and that is constantly still evolving. And so we're hoping that through the catalog, which not only has, you know, I think incredible contributors that are bringing in new scholarship to his work, but also include a really sweet reflection section where people like David Hammonds and Senga Ngudi and, you know, even Dr. Kelly Jones are talking about the impact and the influence of his work. But then we also have this incredible roundtable with a group of film scholars that are thinking about how Ulysses's video work ties into a larger cinematic history. And obviously, as I mentioned before, we're also republishing his memoir that he wrote in the 90s that has really been an incredible resource for Meg and I in terms of charting out a chronology and a historical timeline of his work. So, you know, we really felt that these publications were really important. And we're also hoping that the memoir can sort of continue to center an artist's voice because Ulysses's voice is so unique. And one of the major things that we found in his studio was that he wrote a treatment for every single work, every single video work that he did. And the treatments are often poetic you know, often these sort of manifestos and these mission statements. And we realize how incredibly important his writing practice is in all of this. And so, you know, we're hoping to tease some of that out with these publications. And, you know, the goal of this show has always been to think about his voice alongside ours. How can the sort of scholarship and the artist's voice come together in this way? As I understand it, the books will be available in November and we'll have links to how you can get them on Manpod, on the show page on manpodcast.com. Aaron Cristobal, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Mississippi Museum of Art is pleased to be the first to present A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, opens at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson on April 9th. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. 
This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Welcome back. Next up, I'm joined by Ann T. Woollett, one of three co-curators of Hans Holbein Capturing Character. It's at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York through May 15th. The exhibition presents Hans Holbein the Younger as German but transnational and situates his portraiture between not only influential court figures, but the leading intellectuals of contemporary Switzerland and England. Remarkably, it's the first major Holbein exhibition in the United States. The Morgan co-organized it with the J. Paul Getty Museum, which published the catalog. Amazon offers that catalog for about $50, and you guessed it, we'll have a link on menpodcast.com. Ann Woollett, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Tyler. The first two pictures in the catalog, the extraordinary catalog for your Holbein show, are Holbein's portraits of Erasmus and Thomas More. The show doesn't start with them. The show in L.A. doesn't start with them, but the catalog does. Why did you want to start there in in your representation of Holbein's work in the catalog? Well, the catalog captures, I hope, um, a capsule of the contributions that Holbein makes to portraiture in the Renaissance of this period. These are two key figures in his career, two men who really supported him at key moments. Erasmus supports Holbein as a young artist, gives him the letters of introduction to England in particular, and uh, Thomas More, a good friend of Erasmus. Erasmus's, who receives these letters and you know, accepts the recommendation and then provides Holbein, crucially, with important commissions, uh, at least two commissions for more himself, but also introduces him into the circle of humanists and sort of erudite, uh, learned individuals at the English court in the mid-20s. And that circle of patrons goes on to support Holbein at a kind of larger extent, different individuals indeed in the 30s when Holbein returns. So the, and these, I have to say, these two images are very different ways of, of approaching portraiture. So in the introduction, for which they are the objects in the exhibition, illustrations, it helps introduce some of the range of Holbein's portraiture from the smaller, portable, roundel format, which is a very intimate format, to the larger format, the more descriptive, if you will, the interior view of his sitters. Holbein's approach to portraiture was informed by excuse the grandiose term, the philosophy of Erasmus and Moore by, by their humanism. How were they all swimming in the same ideological soup? Yeah, it's a really fascinating period. And I hope that for our viewers and uh, of the exhibition that they can begin to imagine what must have been a very stimulating period in which there were proximities were possible, even over distance and time. So, there are ways of exchanging ideas, political ideas, philosophical ideas, and also uh, exchanging them, of course, in terms of conversation. But you know, for Holbein, who is, we have to remember, is a craftsman, essentially. He's, he is connected with these major intellectuals and I think must have had a decent enough education, maybe even a Latin training that enabled him to communicate and be accepted in these circles. But 
his function as a as an artist was more as a craftsman. He is able to give visual form and to articulate the ideas visually that are being shared in printed form. So uh, the exhibition highlights a moment in time where books are being produced in Basel, particularly as a major center of printing. Uh, this is where Erasmus prefers to have his works published. And there are exchanges between these individuals in different countries uh, through not only publications, but through correspondence. Holbein uh, shares with someone like Erasmus uh, and even someone like Thomas Cromwell, who was a very also a learned figure. In fact, we don't think of him this way, but he was someone who was cultured. There was a certain amount of itinerancy. So Holbein moves between different cities where there are vigorous cultures, some affected more or less by the Reformation and its impact on images, but still areas of ideas and transformation. And so this is a, a moment in which being mobile <laughs> and having exposure to the exchange of ideas in these different places was very important. Oh, we will be moving Holbein around Europe and the UK here in a little bit. He certainly did get around. You write in the catalog that Holbein's portraiture was an engagement with arguments about whether the written word or the painted image could best convey an individual's interior qualities. How do we see or how might we see that discourse play out across Holbein's oeuvre? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe an example or two from the work and maybe an example or two from the textual discourse of his time. Yes, I mean, this is a very old idea that comes from antiquity that is of interest to Renaissance thinkers in particular. And Erasmus, as uh, Peter van der Kuhlen, I think, writes very effectively in the catalog with someone who was very committed to the efficacy, if you will, of the written word, the ability to convince and to convey nuances and interiority. And, of course, Erasmus, as Peter also helps us understand, was someone who appreciated images, but I think he always remained someone committed to the letter, <laughs> the written word. My belief is actually that Holbein, from whom we have to remember, there we have no personal correspondence, no, no written testament of his thoughts or his belief system. He enters into this argument purely through skill, through innovation, through ingenuity. And we see his contribution in particular to portraiture, which is becoming a a genre that's open to a much wider range of people than before. In the very individual solutions he comes up with to tell us uh, something about the sitter and the variety of sitters that he's able to portray. The exhibition itself focuses primarily on individuals who may have had of court associations, but many of whom were not courtiers, so merchants and also uh, prominent female sitters, maybe some of whom are not easy for us to specify. But a, you know, a good example would be one of the, um, you know, the great portraits, one of the great favorites, I think, um, in all of our kind of Holbein experience is a lady with a squirrel and a starling, thought to be Anne Lovell from the National Gallery in London. A very spectacular representation where you feel a very strong presence of the individual. It's very contained and decorous portrayal of, of a woman as was appropriate. But to this portrait, Holbein brings a second level of language, if you will, with allusions to heraldry and also to rebuses and to verbal games. And so these are identifiable through the presence of the animals in particular. Fantastic pet squirrel that Anne holds by a silver chain. <laughs> the squirrel is nibbling a nut. And then the marvelous starling, the bird that sits uh, in the foliage and seems to be kind of singing into her ear even. 
And, it, you know, it took actually a, a, a modern viewer quite a while to figure out actually what all those elements uh, might mean. And it really was in 2004 when all of these elements are better understood to help us understand that it's, we see a member of the level family and it's probably Anne level. And each of those elements are part of the, the visual representation of the level family. The squirrel is on their coat of arms. And then the starling is this very playful, fun idea in English of the time, which would have sounded similar to the name of the town, the village near their estate in Norfolk, East Harling. This is this is Holbein engaging in a process that was popular um, and engaged many, you know, intellectuals and also those well-educated lay people who wanted to be associated with humanism and humanist thinking. So the the exhibition draws attention to the genre of personal devices. Uh, the way that you have an emblem that represents you and your beliefs or your aspirations. And we find these throughout Holbein's earth, not just in portraits, but in the designs that he makes for jewelry, for paint, you know, in paintings that represent personal devices. We have some of those. So it's a very rich culture and one that's uh, you know, derived, as I mentioned, from, from, a, from an antique basis in many cases, but is revived and becomes an inspired, if you will, uh, literary and visual art form uh, in its own right in this period. Well, now that we know a bit about Holbein and his interests, let's follow him around Europe, as it were. (laughs) We started with Erasmus, and of course, Holbein comes to know Erasmus in Basel. How was Basel important to Holbein's early career, and how might we see that represented in the show? Yes, it's fascinating. Holbein moves to Basel as a young artist, perhaps even before he's a, a fully considered a master. He's and he's the son of an extremely well-respected and successful artist, also known as Hans Holbein the Elder. And younger Hans are the subject of our exhibition, and his elder brother Ambrosius move to a place that has a university where there's a kind of vibrant intellectual culture associated with that. Also, this printing industry, which is considered, you know, outstanding, one of the leading uh, locations for the making of beautiful and, and important books. And it is a city that's thriving in other ways. There are multiple churches. So if you're an artist that needs um, to establish their career, there are many opportunities for different types of painting. And in this location and also other cities in Switzerland, so Holbein makes use of this sort of base in Basel through connections through his father and also other supporters to to work in places like Luzerne. And he, he does, um, you know, very kind of, uh, to me, quite interesting range of work there from individual to kind of design works, working with the publishers of, the, for example, the Johannes Froben, to things like decorative house facades, which sadly don't exist anymore, but we know from some other sources were illusionistic, had very dramatic uses of space and would have been extremely striking kind of form of um, exterior painting. He also painted portraits of leading figures such as the mayor and his wife of Basel and senior civic leaders von Herzenstein's. So uh, it's a place where he's able to make connections immediately and is supported again through connections with uh, significant individuals such as Bonifacius Amerbach. So in the Getty presentation of the exhibition, the viewer will uh, begin in the first section and see some of the key uh, works that Holbein produced in this period. And one of the most important portraits is uh, the portrait of Bonifacius Amerbach. And it really 
establishes for us, I think, a wonderful way of understanding how Holbein may have worked frequently with his sitters, which is to say he seems to have had a rapport with them. It, I don't think it's too much uh, to say that he collaborated in a sense to create the likeness in the end that the sitter really wanted. And then in the case of the Amrabach portrait, which is relatively small, um, you have this uh, you know, very handsome sort of almost three-quarter view of Amrabach himself. And then Amrabach composed a an inscription to go with his likeness. It's a it appears in the painting as a plaque <laughs> with beautiful Roman lettering. This was something that Roman uh, that Holbein was very adept at. He had tremendous dexterity, but it, uh, Amerbach composed it, and we will have this sort of scrap of manuscript <laughs> that shows his some of his drafts, not all of them. He tried very many things, but it's uh, essentially praises the likeness as being lifelike, as being true to nature, and it's a, a an ode to the painter, if you will composed by the sitter and then executed by the painter. But despite all of his efforts, uh, you know, Amerbach actually decided to change the wording a little bit after the painting had been completed. <laughs> so Holbein has to go in and, and uh, change part of the phrasing. But nonetheless, there's this back and forth uh, idea. And I think Holbein takes this, this intimacy and this kind of flexibility, if you will, to his relationships with uh, other um, sitters that he has. And even, you know, we talked about the lady with the squirrel, I think this to me suggests a similar kind of willingness to adjust and to refine. And so Lady with the Squirrel, the Squirrel and perhaps also the Starling are, are added in a very, very late stage after the rest of the painting is, is for the most part finished. So uh, so Bataliza is a huge jumping off point and I think it, it gives, um, it stimulates Holbein to follow his ambitions and he's looking for places in which he can exercise this talent. and. In fact, you know, the Reformation is really gathering some uh, momentum. There may not be enough commissions for religious paintings, for altarpieces, for example, for other types of civic commission. Uh, so he starts looking around, and we know that he, he looks uh, to France as a possible opportunity, maybe to work at the court there, that that doesn't seem to work out. And then, you know, England, of course, being somewhat buffered from changes um, associated with Reformation somewhat there, also not a place with a strong tradition of portrait painting yet. So this becomes his goal. You know, before we totally move on from Basel, I want to ask one more thing about this great, fascinating intersection of written description and painted portrait. The plaque you mentioned in this picture is held up by a nail, and it's kind of a nail that pictorially joins the plaque to the visage that that Holbein is painting. I myself do not know the Trompe-Loy art history of when artists began to have fun painting Trompe-Loy nails, but it certainly continued into the, you know, into like this week. Should we take it that Holbein is absolutely having that kind of fun here? (laughs) Uh, You know, the thing about Holbein is that he can convince us almost any material, I think, you know, this, this nail, which is somehow, you know, it's also really part of the tree. Yeah, it could be a branch. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, you have this kind of intersection of, of artifice and nature. You know, this is, this is central to Holbein's way of playing with us. You know, it's one of the great delights, I think, of his art, actually, is that you get drawn in because you think, well, how did he do it? It's so convincing, this material, whether it's fur or gold, 
jewelry or whatever. And then with a little bit of time, you realize, in, in fact, that he's he's manipulated you <laughs> or there isn't enough space for something or he's turned it so that you can see it in a way that one couldn't normally see it. So absolutely in this in this painting, this portrait of Auerbach, uh, these all these things come together, the, the natural and the and the, ma- and the man-made. And so the way that that frame, which is very kind of square and heavy, kind of fits over this little twig almost. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. And, and it's something that I think Holbein goes on to develop. This painting precedes the use of backgrounds in his portraits. Um, and we'll have several examples in the exhibition where it's this beautiful deep blue over which one sees mobile tendrils of a plant that essentially he creates, the fig vine. You mentioned that Holbein goes from Basel to London, but on his way to London, he stops in Antwerp. At, at, at this time, Antwerp, of course, is a major port city, a major artistic center, a, a huge center of print production, too. We don't believe we have any paintings or drawings from Holbein's stay in Antwerp, but what do you think he might have taken from the place? I think the Antwerp stop was absolutely essential. In fact, he's he goes through Antwerp a couple of times. It's a natural stopping point, I think, between London and Basel. And I think it, it was a real center for artistic exchange. It has a, a large guild of artists. There's also these various corporations that are have a sort of humanist aspect to them of dramatists and of playwrights and, and poets and, and all of these other arts that are associated in a way with visual representation. He would have wanted to meet the leading artist, and it sounds like he probably did meet uh, Quentin Metzeis. And uh, Albrecht Schurer, of course, had been there previously, not long before. And so uh, word of the very sumptuous welcome that Durer received and the way that he was able to make his presence uh, known and kind of, I think, share his own approach to portraiture would have been an important sort of precursor to Holbein's own arrival you know, Holbein, I think, also probably had a chance to see portraiture and the major altarpieces that were on view in the Cathedral of Our Lady, actually not yet a cathedral, but the Church of Our Lady, a very large structure and, and the the local other local churches there. There was a, a close correspondence, in fact, between the government members, some of whom, one in particular, um, he was very good friend of Erasmus's. Um, Peter Killis, um, Petrus Aegidius, as he was known in Latin, uh, who had a great interest in in culture and in art and uh, would have sort of been very interested in, in meeting perhaps someone like Holbein. But he's he's still a young man, and, and Erasmus's introduction at this point was was supportive but not effusive, essentially. So uh, it's, it's interesting to speculate about how Holbein himself might have made uh, personal connections. But, you know, looking back at that moment... It probably also established some relationship with the Flemish community, not just of painters, but perhaps also of goldsmiths. There were key individuals later in the 1530s working in London who were Flemish goldsmiths, and that was an area in which Holbein was very productive. He made a lot of designs for jewelry and for metalwork that really could only be executed by these exceptionally talented metalworkers, goldsmiths, jewelers. When Holbein gets to London, he apparently immediately spends two years living with Thomas More, prosaic as it is. Why? <laughs> but maybe more interestingly, what does he get out of that? Well, he gets out of that access to to a circle of patrons who will be interested in having their likeness made. 
So this is a kind of key moment, I think, in the development of the visual culture in England in particular, amongst someone like you know, Sir Thomas More, who has a much wider kind of worldview, if you will, um, an awareness of, of trends and, and possibilities elsewhere. But, you know, this idea that having an image of yourself is important for, you know, for various reasons, for posterity, for self-definition, for assertion of status, this sort of thing, this really takes hold. And there's, it's, the, the timing seems to have been quite fortuitous. So from this base of Thomas More's house, where there were various visitors and guests, and some of them would have had positions associated with the court, so you know, More and his very prominent kind of area of responsibility uh, would have been communicating with them, but also, uh, you know, maybe individuals that are somewhat further afield, but, you know, still associated with the court, finding it appropriate, in fact, to to have themselves portrayed. And and this circle actually was very crucial to establishing Hawaiian's sort of notoriety. And he, he also meets through more, not just court functionaries like the Guilfords, for example, but also sort of fellow foreigners, if you will. Um, so Nicholas Kratzer, the great um, German mathematician um, who was associated with Moore, but also Guilford and some others, you know, um, someone that Holbein um, portrays in a magnificent portrait in the Louvre, but associates that had similar interests probably informed his ideas about visualizing his sitters in the, the places that they worked in the, in the interiors where they could be defined with with the appropriate setting, with the appropriate accoutrements, um, things that we would call attributes now, ways, ways that we understand the kind of work and the kind of thinking that they were doing. So you mentioned a moment ago that Holbein is, is painting, you know, astronomers and he's painting attendants at court and merchants and royals, all of these people from very different stations, shall we say. Are there meaningful differences in his pictures or in his approaches to pictures of, say, a merchant and, say, a court figure? I think Holbein found the pictorial solution that suited each of these types of sitter, but I think it really depends on the definition, if you will, visually of their status and also of their aspirations. So really, you know, speaking of someone who we can imagine based on their status is probably associated with the court. We may not know precisely who they are. And I'm thinking of we have some beautiful portraits of women that are very spectacularly outfitted, but we don't have any more information potentially about who they are as uh, as individuals. And someone like a Hanseatic League merchant who wants to be seen in a particular way. You know, the whole line is able to find the way forward for both of these individuals. And and so it gives us into in, insight into what distinguishes them, you know, to their peers in a sense. You know, where there were sumptuary laws that they were very strict about the kind of clothing and jewelry a person could wear, there were no laws that could tell them whether or not they could quote a classical source or um, a poem by Petrarch. <laughs> so, so you know, Holbein is able to bring in these more intellectual elements, I think, in a very interesting way. And it, in part, I think, it, in a very, in a very fun-loving but very serious way, in the sense that he is able to suggest individual handwriting, or he's able to suggest a certain type of document because he has this capacity to letter in different forms. So you get the illusion of a 
little cartolino that looks like someone has written on it um, themselves, or something that's a more formal trompe l'oeil effect, uh, something that's carved into stone, for example, or the, you know, the more famous kind of uh, gold lettering that's very beautiful and seems to sort of be letters hanging, kind of glittering in the air to either side of a, of a sitter. So it, it is, in a sense, um, a sort of traditional process in the sense that you, if you were someone at court and you could somehow indicate that you're associated with the king, you would do that. So Richard, Richard Southwell, you know, this is indicated very specifically in the inscription. But if you were a merchant, you could have a very similar portrait, but your the content of your lettering might be something that's, that's more elusive to humanist interests, for example. The Richard Southwell lettering, for example, reads... 10th of July in the year, 1536, and then names the monarch, I think, right? Under under whom Southwell is, or to whom Southwell is attendant. Yeah, it's, it seems to be a very overt statement of loyalty to the king, essentially. And this is in keeping with what we know about Southwell, who I, I think I describe in our gallery text as nefarious. You know, he had a very complicated and rather menacing role, it seems, in the 1530s in the way that he is associated with major figures and some of their downfalls. These include Cromwell himself, uh, Thomas More before him. He seems to have been Southall and some others were involved in the murder of a nobleman um, and are pardoned. So, (laughs) but, you know, through all of these events, you know, he is able to maintain a very high level of devotion and sense to the mark and his his programming, so this allusion to Henry VIII is very clear here. But interestingly, this portrait of Southwell also suggests that he wants viewers, posterity, to understand his his life, his position, as one that was also linked to court culture and its erudition, if you will, and its, its sophistication. He wears a, a beautiful and kind of sculptural hat badge that has the kind of bust, antique bust, of a woman uh, set into it, uh, of a type that was very similar to uh, metalwork that Holbein was designing for the court and also for a, a piece that we know he um, designed for Anne Boleyn potentially. So, drawing on you know Italianate, if not actually ancient um, source materials. So it's an interesting and important aspect of the painting. Not even a detail, I would say. I would say it's a, a clear part of the communication here that uh, the sitter wanted us to have to know. You know, while we're talking about the way Holbein builds out what what's behind a sitter like Southwell, such as with gold lettering, you know, another thing Holbein does in portrait after portrait is is intensely compress space behind his sitters. Sometimes it almost feels like the backgrounds of his portraits are pushing up against or resting against the backs of Holbein's sitters. Do we have ideas? Do you have ideas about why he builds pictorial space that way? Oh, you know, Holbein really seems to have a very aggressive, in a sense, idea about how to increase the sense of presence in the portrait. So I think it's fascinating, these blue backgrounds in particular, which are different shades of this deep blue. Some are a little more turquoise and more uh, kind of sapphire-like. And they're very important. In fact, the colors sort of shift over time and I've been thinking a little bit about, you know, what that might mean for what we might think of a stylistic development um, in the 30s, for example. But it really just pushes the figure forward. And in the way that he has this just unbelievable precision of application, it enhances that sense of 
of the figure in this phrase. And I think it will be interesting for our viewers to see these paintings in person, maybe after having seen more of them in reproduction, because they're not necessarily one-to-one scale for most of the sitters, like Thomas Cromwell or Sir Thomas More, those are larger kind of format, uh, Lady Guilford. Uh, but remember, the paintings are a little bit smaller than life size, and so, but you nonetheless feel that you are confronted with an individual. There's a very direct correlation between our presence and the person that we're looking at on this flat surface. It's also, I think, a chromatic, there's a chromatic choice being made here where flesh is enhanced in a sense by this juxtaposition. And we do see that in German painting in this period too. Other artists, you know, Cronach, for example, Lucas Cronach the Elder, using different colored greens. Sometimes artists would use red. So they're not meant to be naturalistic per se. Um, and the interesting thing, of course, with Holbein is that you have this intense sense of naturalism often, but then um, it's all a very sophisticated artifice that expresses his technical and you know, compositional skill. Uh, I think he's not a, a shy artist in that regard. You know, we really, each one of these is sort of testament to the ability of the, of the painter to convince us, to engage us, to communicate with us. And to go back to the inscription, sometimes these inscriptions that are included are extremely overt statements of superior, you know, visual superiority on the part of the artist, praising his ability to to show us someone as if almost in parallel to the, you know, his maker, <laughs> as he says, one of the inscriptions, an extreme statement of, of ability. Uh, which I find actually quite fascinating, kind of very specific aspect of, of Holbein. It's certainly in the absence of any other information from him, <laughs> and, and even relatively little information from his contemporaries. You know, one notable exception from Holbein's often, almost typical compression of space is his portrait of Thomas Cromwell from 1532-33. And in fact, in this picture, Holbein seems to go out of his way with the way he uses different shades of green to make space expansive. Why is he doing something so different in his portrait of, of Cromwell? Cromwell, to me, is completely fascinating because this is a, this is a case where he's, he's sandwiched his sitter. You know, you, we are kind of kept at bay. We're kept away from this uh, incredibly powerful administrator, uh, someone who is occupies a position quite close to the king, who's carrying out the king's business, and uh, we're separated from him <laughs> by the table, uh, by the, uh, which is covered with the green cloth. And a, and a book and papers and all kinds of other things that seem to suggest that Cromwell does not have time for us. Oh, quite right. And the arm, you know, the classic arm, which we see in papal portraits and everything else, which is the arm, you know, on the table between us and him. There's a lot of insistence in this portrait, in this sort of horizontal elements, you know, surfaces, parameters of the wood paneling behind him, and also very insistent vertical. So you create a kind of a grid-like structure that really, I think, conveys in parts a sense of power, authority that's very solid. And of course, then that figure of Cromwell, as we see him sitting there, is kind of bulky. He's in his fur-lined cloak. You know, he looks like a formidable individual just as a physical presence. And we don't get to see his entire face. We see him in this sort of near profile. And he's looking away. And looking towards the light, I wonder whether what we don't see on the left as we look at the painting is maybe an, a window or some other opening that casts the shadow that we see on the right. 
and it is a, a case where the, the spatial decompression is really quite quite noticeable. And I, I think it's a very you know the portrait's been sort of described as I think you know maybe not so flattering, <laughs> maybe maybe one that isn't about I don't know the nicer parts of, of Thomas Cromwell potentially. But I think actually you know what Holbein and probably Cromwell himself are interested in is the sort of, if you will, a, a conflation of the of the formal and professional aspects with uh, his personal interior. Uh, Susan Foister has noticed that you know this is not an interior that's easy to define. Is it living parts of his house or is this like his office? We're not quite sure. I, I, I find the decorative elements, which are primarily the damask uh, blue background behind his head, very important. Uh, without that element, without the energy of that pattern and that design, it, it would be a, a very fixed and, and kind of quite fierce um, characterization. But that pattern, to me, it seems to allude to a mental energy, to a very powerful intellect, potentially. And then um, the objects on the table, certainly the documents, one of which has, is addressed to him and specifies him as master of the jewel house, which is a specific honor he had recently received, but also this very beautifully bound book, which is perhaps the nearest, closest thing to us, it really links him to royal service, to the king specifically. And these are the things that help us kind of <laughs> lead us to him. It's, you know, it's through these specific elements on the tabletop. And then, of course, I think we shouldn't overlook the, the key element, which is that in his hand, he holds a folded piece of paper, maybe a letter. So either he's going to dispense a decision or issue a demand or a request or some other thing, um, or he's received it. But that also alludes to his efforts across the country, his his work outside this space. Speaking of little details like that, we, we started on this a moment ago. One of the delights in Holbein's portraiture is the stuff in the pictures that are not the sitter, the, the, the jewelry, the, the stuff like jewelry and hat pins on hats. Sometimes they're attributes denoting profession, but often they're just like playful visual references or puns or jokes, like his use of Medusa in one portrait of a woman. At the risk of asking you for favorites, do you have favorite ways that Holbein plays with denoting his sitters or their work or their accomplishments through these details, through these devices? Yeah, I've come to appreciate the, the diversity of these sort of attributes that Holbein brings and the, the kind of... Um, incredible specificity and refinement that require us, you know, 500 years later to kind of work out exactly what they're all about. Uh, I'm a big fan of the jewels myself. I find them a really interesting way of thinking about modes of communication in the period. You know, I think we still do this today, but, you know, the notion of wearing something on your body that's actually another composition that might even have a, an inscription that goes with it that would have caught the attention of someone meeting you, speaking with you, wanting to approach you. You would have been, a, in many cases, for people of high status, a proprietary piece of jewelry that really was just unique to you. And this is really a fun and interesting, but also quite serious. And we'll have a number of examples in the exhibition that will help us all think about the ways in which someone in this period kind of dazzled and impressed <laughs> um, their their friends and their contemporaries uh, with these absolutely exquisite and um, small-scale compositions. Um, the way they glittered, the way they had a three-dimensional kind of quality, a sort of sculptural quality in some cases, um, is is remarkable and 
one of the aspects of Holbein's art that I think is worth thinking about a little bit more, and we'll have these drawings in the exhibition from the British Museum, are the ways that he designed these uh, compositions, and they are maybe the most two inches in diameter or even smaller. And I think one of the most beautiful, actually, um, that I did want to mention is in the collection of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, this um, design for either a medallion that could have been worn on the front of a woman's gown or could have been a hat badge potentially on a man's cap, showing Tantalus. And it's just a, like a complete miracle of draftsmanship. The pen work is unbelievable. And then it's delicately colored with watercolor and then there are touches of gold. So these elements, the color and the gold were guiding the goldsmith uh, who would have made it. And it's completely compelling. I was not prepared when I first saw it uh, in, at the National Gallery for, you know, spending an hour looking at this, you know, two inch wide <laughs> object. I was um, I had to apologize to my colleagues. I, no, really, I'm leaving. I am. But I, I do hope that um, we will have the chance to enchant people with uh, these aspects of Holbein's art because they were really encapsulate his just innate uh, skill and ingenuity um, on, a, on this small scale that would have been very much appreciated in the, in, at the time, essentially. So I slightly gave away the answer to my, <laughs> my next question a moment ago when we were talking about Cromwell, just because I couldn't resist talking about that painting as we were having that conversation. But when Holbein is about 30 in the late 1520s, he, he returns to Basel, doesn't stay too long, and then goes back to England. But the England he returns to has changed. How has it changed and how does Holbein adapt? A lot happened in those few years that he was away. Oh boy, yeah. He experiences essentially changing of the guard in terms of his generational shift of some of his patrons. And those individuals, Thomas More being probably the most prominent, but also Sir Henry Guilford, God solves Thomas More, are really, are, are either at the end of their lives or they have run up against the great problem that's, you know, occupying the king, which is his desire to, you know, end his marriage to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and marry Anne Boleyn. So, you know, Holbein returns at a moment of, of transformation, but he seems very capably to uh, take advantage of the connections he may still have in the country and to make new connections. So his studio, so to speak, is in an area of London that's really not that far from the what we know in English as the steel yard, the enclave in which merchants from Germany, the Hanseatic League, are allowed to carry out their business. Uh, and it's for a group of German merchants that he makes an important series of paintings, and we'll have a number of these in the exhibition. He does not follow a formula for these individuals. He follows uh, their lead and, and portraying them in different ways. Some of them don't appear to be merchants <laughs> at first glance. And this, in these portraits, we don't know for sure they may have been uh, for those individuals to send home, or they may actually have been on view, for example, in the Guild Hall of the Hanseatic League and the Steelyard together. But in any case, they're an important group of patrons for Holbein in the early 30s. He also is able to paint for very high-level diplomats. So uh, the ambassadors, the most uh, extraordinary painting, we almost can think about this early 30s period that's at the National Gallery in London, sadly a, a work of art that is not able to travel outside the, the walls of the National Gallery. But those two sitters are French aristocrats and diplomats in London. And also Holman paints the portrait of the Lord of Moretta, 
spectacular painting in Dresden. Another French diplomat said he's he's able to tackle that group. Uh, it's a period of tremendous tumultuous change, and you know Henry VIII is um, through through a process becoming the head of the Church of England. Um, there are new parliamentary rules. There are there's an oath that must be taken of loyalty to him, and as as the head of the church, Thomas More famously does not does not want to take this oath. He does not take it, and he's ultimately tried and executed. Anne Boleyn, who's been on the scene for some time, who's a very interesting figure, who herself has had a quite a good education and has spent a long period at the French court, brings with her. French ideas, manners, also, I think, a considerable sort of intellectual interest. Holbein is involved with projects for her um, through the king, designing jewels and another uh, precious objects, probably. We don't seem to have a portrait, a painted portrait of Anne Boleyn, but um, surviving. But in any case, you know, she had also um, poets and things associated with her that uh, Holbein worked for. So his, his attachment to the court is really expanding. And then, of course, most significantly, he becomes one of the king's painters. The date we can't be totally sure of because documents are missing for a kind of crucial period, but it may have been as early as 1532 when he arrives or a little bit later. But certainly by 1536, we have clear evidence that that is the position he holds. He, he seems to sail through this kind of rocky terrain uh, reasonably well. And, and Thomas Cromwell actually is a very important figure in this period. Susan Foister has written uh, quite interestingly about Cromwell as a collector, you know, his inventory show, the contents of his house, the paintings and other works of art that he owned. We know that he was interested in Petrarch, so he was reading in Italian. He was capabilities in different languages. Also someone who traveled, who had connections, strong connections to Antwerp. So these are all but kind of points of contact with Holbein that I think are quite interesting and you know, probably helped you know, Holbein kind of fit into you know, Cromwell's kind of you know, broader circle, if you will, although we don't Again, we don't have the documents to help us know precisely uh, how this process worked. The last specific painting I want to bring up is a painting from about this period. It's a painting in Toledo of a woman believed to be in Cromwell's family. I think it's fair to say there's not another painting in the show of someone dressed quite this spectacularly. What might we make of this painting of a woman in Cromwell's family and is the way the really ornate way in which she's dressed, should that suggest anything to us? You know, one of the interesting aspects of this exhibition where we we ask our viewers to think about how identity is constructed and how, how Holbein does this is that we can't always answer the question, which is to say that we were given a lot of specific information for some of the sitters visually, but that doesn't necessarily mean a name or even some further description of their occupation or, or association. So, this is true for some of the female portraits um, that we'll, we'll show. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to understand how uh, clothing and jewelry was an extremely important way of defining your position in society. And this beautiful painting in, in Toledo is a prime example of this circumstance, essentially, where we can assume, I think, fairly securely that she is a woman associated with the court. Perhaps it was part of a pair of portraits, but we don't know that for sure. It's not impossible this could have been a portrait that stood on its own. She is dressed in a way that um, highlights uh, Holbein's ability to paint gold objects, so the little egglets, the little short decorative gold tips that we see on her gown are really absolutely stunning. And, and then very importantly, actually, the jewel that she wears is the only case where we can link 
a jewel in a Holbein painting uh, that survives today with a drawing for jewelry by Holbein. So that's one of the drawings for medallions and hat badges that we will have from the British Museum. And the composition is shows Lot and his family fleeing Sodom, and uh, Lot's wife is turning to a pillar of salt in the center, and her body as it becomes a block represented by a cut gem. So this is what we see also in the portrait. I think, you know, as a as a work of, you know, relatively late in, in Holbein's career, you know, he dies at a pretty young age. 45 years old, yeah. You know, we see this uh, palette that's kind of a more restricted palette, very rich, deep tones. It's a particularly beautiful painting. What do we know of Holbein's end? Does he return to Basel? Does he make it back home? He makes it back home in the late 1530s when he's on the continent, on the king's business. I think he's still kind of associating himself. Maybe there's some expectation that he will return to stay. You know, his family is still there, and Basel authorities are eager to keep him there. We have to remember at this time that, you know, if you're a citizen of one place, you travel elsewhere with a passport, so to speak, with a dispensation, and so he sort of receives permission to leave and then come back. There are contemporary reports that he's well-dressed, and he's obviously showing that he's reached a certain level of achievement and status, but he does return to London, and, you know, in his final weeks, he makes a will. We can understand from the will, for example, he owned a horse. Um, we also know that he had two illegitimate children that he wanted to have provided for there. And he paints a self-portrait at the end, which describes himself as a citizen of Basel. So whether this suggests that he's intending to return there is not, it's not at all clear, but um, there is plague in London at this time. And it appears that he's a victim of the plague. And his estate is his you know, belongings and the execution of his will is handled by friends and artists um, in London. And um, of course, you know, it's very interesting, the very spectacular drawings, uh, many of which we'll have in the exhibition. So drawings in preparation for the painted portraits are probably uh, kept in his studio and those become the property of the king and then have a very kind of distinguished uh, royal provenance, although they go in and out of royal possession over the centuries. Finally, I was surprised to read this was the first big Holbein show, paintings show in, in the U.S. ever. Holbein's a pretty big deal. And over the last generation or two, artists as disparate as Catherine Opie and Carrie James Marshall have had a lot of success riffing on Holbein. Why have, Why hasn't there been one until now? Well, it's, I think it's it's time now to, to have a look at this wonderful Renaissance artist. I think, you know, the portraits in the United States uh, are held in, in important collections in the East Coast, in New York, in Washington, single examples elsewhere uh, in the United States. We're hoping, you know, to have the opportunity to show everyone um, the holdings of Holbein paintings here uh, in the U.S., uh, the drawings are very, very rare. In fact, there are just two Holbein drawings in the United States, uh, one at the Getty Portrait Drawing and then the Tantalus Drawing uh, for, jewelry, for Jewelry in Washington. I think Holbein is often associated with sort of national art history, if you will, in other places. So the places in which he worked, he is really often associated with changes in the local artistic school there. Major exhibitions of Holbein's art have taken place in Basel and also uh, in London. So although this Holbein exhibition was in the early 80s, 1982, um, in fact, the, the Getty Museum and the Morgan Library together hosted a, what must have been a very, very 
gorgeous exhibition of drawings, uh, portraits by Holbein from the collection of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. They were not paintings that were a major part of that exhibition at all. I think with all Renaissance paintings, exhibitions, and portrait exhibitions, it's quite difficult to borrow these works of art. So we're immensely grateful to the generous and stalwart figures that have supported our project and enabled us to show, I think, some of the most beloved and famous works in their collections in Europe and in the United Kingdom, uh, allow us to bring them to Los Angeles and to New York. Once in a lifetime, so don't miss it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anne Willett, thanks very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.